This is Start Disrupting, a show about the innovator, scientist, and designer disrupting industries and creating 10x impact. I'm your host, Brett Malone, President and CEO of the Virginia Tech Corporate Research Center. Today on the show is Dr. Joseph Simone. Joe's the co-founder of Carbon, a company doing 3D printing in novel ways, currently working with Adidas to develop 4D lattice midsole technology for novel running shoes. Joe is a distinguished academic researcher, starting his career at Virginia Tech, moving on through UNC, and now with uh, Stanford University. Dr. Simone has over 350 scientific articles, 200 patents, has received President Obama's National Medal of Technology and recently received the Distinguished Achievement Award from Virginia Tech. Today on the show, we're going to be talking about entrepreneurship, academic research, and bridging into the entrepreneurial and business worlds, managing the tensions that our researchers and investigators understand as they try to start their own companies. Sit back. I think you're really going to enjoy the format of this show. So, Joe, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Good. Thank you. Uh, let's, let's talk a little bit about some of your current work. And then uh, for our listeners, what I'd really like to do is be able to take uh, some advice and, and really have your body of work as, as a reference for some of those who are just getting started. So tell us a little bit about Carbon, a little bit about some of the work that you're doing now, and uh, obviously some of the high impact commercial successes that we're seeing in, in the form of new running shoes. Yeah, so, um, you know, on the faculty at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill for many, many years since, uh, you know, left Virginia Tech in 1990 and joined the UNC faculty. And I got introduced to 3D printing around the year 2000 uh, with Invisalign and uh, thought that was very cool, you know, making replicas of teeth. And, and then I started, you know, incorporating various 3D printing activity into my classroom and boy, I fell in love with it, but at the same token, I was extremely disappointed uh, in the quality of the parts, the quality of the materials, and frankly, just how slow it was. And so that was sort of nagging. Uh, and, uh, and then I had a former postdoc come up and say he wanted to uh, start a 3D printing company with me. And I asked him what the idea was. And he said, I, you know, I think we can build 3D printers cheaper than everybody else. And I said, Alex, that's more of an activity than an idea. What's the idea? And he said, no, that was it. And uh, then I asked him a question, I, and I knew the answer before I asked him, but um, I said, did you look up any patents? And he said, no. And I said, well, go look up these five keywords. And he came back and was all disappointed. There was like 480 patents in the last three years. And, and I, I love patents. I think patents drive ideas. Um, and when you look at how people claim and think about their ideas, it was all related to layer by layer. And to me, that was an opportunity for us to think about doing it continuously and get away from the, you know, the mass of the IP and try to think about something differently and became a driving force. And so we figured out a way how to do 3D printing continuously, which opened up going much faster, much better surface quality, eliminating the anisotropy, the, the layer by layer dependence on the orientation of properties. And then on top of that, we developed new approaches for getting some amazing polymer properties out of a light-based process that opened up 
really this, this set the foundation for hardware, software, and materials all coming together to usher in digital manufacturing, not just prototyping. Yeah, I think that's fascinating because instead of being ad developed layer by layer, it literally lifts itself out of the out of the polymer. It's just fascinating to watch. And to your point, it creates more of this continuous feel as opposed to a, a 2D layer by layer. Yeah, and, you know, and that was a little bit inspired by uh, T-1000 and Terminator 2, mm -hmm. <laughs> rising out of the milieu. Uh, uh, but, you know, this idea of going at that time 25 to 100 times faster, now we're even staring at 1,000 times faster, and then traditional 3D printing with advanced materials and not just brittle plastic set the stage for digital manufacturing. And, and beyond that, just now designing products on the means of production and really disintermediating the entire product development cycle where you, you cut out prototyping, mm -hmm. you cut out tooling, and you're actually designing products on the means of production, and that can dramatically accelerate product introductions like we see with Adidas and, and other companies. So Adidas is a great example of taking this technology, productizing it, and really moving into a manufacturing setting. Tell us a little bit about what Adidas is doing. And, you know, I, I know they have shoes on the market now that, that are either based on or developed by uh, using this, this manufacturing technique. Yeah, Adidas is an amazing partner. Um, we, we established a partnership with them back in 2016 or so. And what's really great about that company, it's a great intersection of engineers and design coming together with biomechanics. And, and uh, they had aspirations for 3D printing shoes like a lot of running shoe companies at the time but they felt that all the incumbent approaches were too slow, did not have the right mechanical properties. And we introduced our technology to them and they fell in love with the materials first. And you know, what's great about a company like Adidas is that they can help you, you know, come to market. And so there's an idea called crossing the chasm that Jeffrey Moore talks about out of his book titled Crossing the Chasm. And you need a chaperone right. in his vernacular to cross the chasm. And Adidas was that for us. And and uh, they knew it was going to, you know, they make 500 million pairs of shoes a year. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we thought, boy, if we can get to 10% of just being extraordinary. And there's nothing like anything at that kind of volume in the 3D printing space. And, mm -hmm. you know, we're at millions a year now. We're not at, we're not at uh, 50 million yet, but we're, you know, getting up there now. And, and, uh, and it started off by having an offering that, you know, the ASP for the shoes back in 2017 was like $300 a pair. You, know, you can't sell tens of millions of shoes at that price point. But as the volumes got up and the, and the resin pricing came down and the technology got better from the speed of printing and, and post-processing where you didn't have mixed waste and you could recover resins, all those things you do. Now you buy the shoes and they're, you know, they're less than half of that price on their, on their website. And they have amazing now inspiration for biomechanics. There's a new shoe they launched about a month ago called the 4D Forwards. Mm -hmm. And it's a sheer forwarding. So it's a lattice design that we help, we help them with our lattice software, where when you hit, you're, you're pushed forward. In fact, if you took a pad of that lattice and you drop a ball on it, it deflects at a 13 degree angle forward. Interesting. So this is really, you know, biomechanic inspired running shoes. And, you know, it's, it's going to be the big, you know, the big running shoe at the Olympics and everything. We're very excited about it. You know, I love to see that integration of, 
you know, form and function and, you know, design. We've got a lot of runners out here at our research park. And, you know, the fact that you've got so much technology going into these shoes right now and the fact that something innovative really has come around to change the game for it. So you said something I want to go back and unpack just for a minute. You said that sounds like an activity versus an idea. And as you know, I think as we take this conversation towards how can innovators and entrepreneurs be thinking about ideas, innovation, you know, a couple of things you've already said, obviously indicate your background, your roots in entrepreneurial and technology and early markets, you know, Jeffrey Moore and crossing the chasm, thinking about it's great to have an innovation and an idea and a product, but to get to the mainstream market, to have that huge impact, you, you really have to understand the whole product concept. So a couple of things that you've said, obviously, I, I knew that our conversation would head in this direction quickly. Tell me what you mean when, when you unpack that idea of activity versus an idea. Yeah, yeah that's a good question. And, and uh, picking up on that thread, you know, I think this you know, first and foremost, I think entrepreneurs need to ask themselves is, you know, is their idea a product or a company? You know, there's a lot of product mm-hmm. ideas out there. Right. And, uh, and you approach the market very differently, or, you know, and, and uh, it's hard to launch a company on a product idea. And, you know, whether you have a company idea or a platform and thinking about things in a platform manner. But, you know, part and parcel of this whole thing is thinking about the business model, too you know, out of the gates, you know, it's just as important to be as innovative in the business model as you are on the technology. Mm-hmm. You know, we rolled out our technology as a subscription model. It's the very first example of a manufacturing hardware ever to go out via subscription model. And when I, and, and the rationale for that, you know, so the, the financial people would love you to get the subscription model because you have the predictability of revenue and all those things. Mm-hmm. If you're in the physical world, and you're literally staring at a 30 years of innovation, like we feel like we are still. How do you get somebody to join you in the journey mm-hmm. and to future-proof them from obsolescence mm-hmm. and not get mad at you because you constantly are innovating? You know, and I, the frustration of having somebody buy something and then, you know, six months later, you got something better. You don't want people to be frustrated with you. You want people to celebrate that. Mm-hmm. And so we decided to make sure that our technology was 100% smart hardware uh, that could get over-the-air software upgrades. Our founding vice president of engineering, Craig Carlson, was the founding VP of engineering at Tesla. And just like the Tesla car is an integrated computer software system that gets over-the-air software upgrades, we designed our printer to be exactly the same. And we're constantly upgrading. And our customers celebrate that. And aren't mad at us. It's a journey. They join us in this partnership. It's a, you know, the, the, it's a relationship or a partnership. It's not a transactional sale. And, uh, and that important, that it's really important to capture that innovation and drive it towards customer satisfaction. And that's what we did. And I encourage everyone, when you think about companies, is that and you think about business models, is how are you going to get to that first $5 million of ARR, you know, annual returning revenue? Right. And organize your thinking around that along with your technology. Yeah, I, I really like what you say about having a, a relationship and a partnership with the market because to, to future-proof, like you said, it goes beyond just one, one device or one software release, and you're really creating an experience, a long-term relationship with 
the essence of your product. Your product is, you know, that innovation that someone could obtain from your device. So the speed and the accuracy and, and the unique customization that your device can afford them, that, that opens up so many markets for them. So one of the topics that comes up frequently on, on this podcast is pivot or persist. And my, my guess is you may not be operating today with the original model that you had thought of as you sort of launched into this. Tell me about, you know, as, as you think about persisting and having resilience, how, how do you think about juggling those forces and the tension that's, that's between those forces? Yeah, you know, pivoting is, is not all that it's made up to be, too. Um, in the sense that, you know, in the business model, we were thinking that, you know, because we're a small company, it might be better to start off as a transactional sale, a traditional sale, because people are used to that. Capital purchases were used to that. And it would be easier for our business to start out that way. And then we would pivot to a subscription model over time. We sort of anticipated that. And then our board said, look, why, tell us all the reasons, again, why you want to be a subscription model. And it was all about partnerships, engagement, growing organically, future-proofing them from obsolescence, all that. They said, look, if you, that was really compelling. If you really believe that, don't pivot. We have all our companies trying to pivot to a subscription model now, and it's killing us because you have the DNA of a traditional sales team and everything. If you believe that, come out of the gates with your model. It's going to be slower. It's going to cost us more money, but it was really compelling. And so that persistence became the driving force for the business model that, that allowed us to move forward. So that was a, a really key thing that we did when we launched. You know, I think one of the things that really stands out to me in your body of work is the way you've balanced such a distinguished academic and research career with an, an equally impressive business career. And you know, if I have my numbers right, you have somewhere north of 350 scientific articles, publications, 200 patents. Um, and so this, we run into this a lot in terms of investigators who are coming out of university research settings. And, you know, we, we try to help give them that pathway and that balance towards entrepreneurship while maintaining that, that pathway towards academic excellence and research uh, progression. Tell me a little bit about how you've mastered that balance between being in such a distinguished research career, but, but equally so successful on the business side. Well, thank you for that. I, you know, <clears throat> let me come at this from the perspective of ideas and learning, which is what we do in the academy, right? And, <clears throat> and there's a really great book out there by uh, Peter Thiel uh, about zero to one. Um, and it's about ideas and talks about a zero to one idea being a seminal breakthrough idea and a one to N idea mm -hmm. and ideas that build off the seminal idea. And in his book, the, his thesis is that at the core of a zero to one idea is often a, in, an idea that you alone believe in that nobody else does. And say, so, okay, well, let's take that at its foundation. Let's think about, and as you know, I, uh, vision without resources is a hallucination. Right? <laughs> that, might, that, that might be the title of this podcast for all I know. And that's a great title. Yeah, it's not my line. That bar is <laughs> right. So if you've got a, a zero to one idea and you are a traditional academic and you, you, know, you, you sort of assume academics have great breakthrough ideas and you go to get that funded. 
and you write a grant, and now you write to NSF or NIH. And nowadays, you've got to have, you know, six reviews, you've got to get six excellence or 10 excellence. Uh, if you get one very good, your idea is often dead in the water. So what's the probability of having an idea that you alone believe in that nobody else does and getting 10 excellence in your idea? Now you go down to Sand Hill Road, which is a metaphor for where all the venture capitalists are, and you go down Sand Hill Road and you, and you talk to 10 venture capitalists, you can get nine no's and one yes and you're in the game. Mm -hmm. And so the big ideas, the big breakthrough risky ideas are often easier to get funded in the private sector than they are through traditional academic funding mechanisms. Mm -hmm. So that's, um, that's just an eye-opening. And so that's where philanthropy and professorships and student fellowships, and it becomes a seed capital in the public, in, in a university-like setting, uh, that's really important. So, you know, to me, I think if all that speaks to, I think one needs to have a balanced portfolio. Mm -hmm. Not everybody is, is entrepreneurial can do that, and I get that. But those that can, it's really powerful if you can combine both uh, entrepreneurship as well as the traditional academic uh, approaches. Yeah, and I, th I think that's what we see in some of our standout academic researchers that, you know, they come to a place like Blacksburg or obviously Stanford, and, you know, they bring a, a fresh perspective. They bring a team, magnetize a team. So that, you know, they're always thinking about applied research. They're, they're thinking about ways to quickly translate into, you know, meaningful output. And so, you know, this ability to move quickly through your first idea, like you say, zero to one. And I love the book and I, I highly recommend the book. The idea that re researchers can, can pursue this and, you know, see their, their ideas move forward. I think that's important. And it is a balanced portfolio. I don't think it's an either or. It has to, you know, it shows that it feeds all the way back around and it improves the quality of the research because now you're thinking about how do we build on this? Yeah, and you know, and university policies need to align up with that. So one thing I was really proud of at, at University of North Carolina and, and I was there for such a long time and I, I was helpful in trying to, you know, organize these approaches, but to have policies that allow conflict of interest management and you know protect the graduate students, protect the institutions. You know, a lot of our clinical trials at UNC, Duke and Carolina could go back and forth and do the clinical trials of, of the each own's technology at the other institution. And you know, Stanford and MIT, I don't, I don't think are well organized in that regard. And I think there's opportunities for improvement. And you know, I'm on the innovation or the innovation campus advisory board here at Virginia Tech and. Mm -hmm. You know, thinking about you know what sort of policies do we need to facilitate the faculty leadership in this new in this entrepreneurial world that balances the academic and protects the students and the faculty and the institutions are all things that I think can be done, uh, but it takes work and and uh, and openness and transparency, which is really key. Well, and and you mentioned Innovation Campus, Northern Virginia, and Virginia Tech's role at you know, expanding the enterprise. And, and I think industry is looking for uh, that productivity out of academia and they're looking for researchers to be more balanced in their portfolio, if, if only because they're looking to that community for ideas and inspiration. You know, they need to move fast. Adidas knows there's valuable technology being developed. How do they tap into that so that they can, they can grow their footprint as well? No pun intended. 
Yeah, that's right. That's right. And you know, one thing that we also run into, and you certainly must have found this, again, I use the word tension, and, and maybe that's not the right word, but you know, as you think about a, a rigorous researcher with a, a well-established body of data, as well as as you move into the business world and as you need to develop more marketing claims, there's a point in time where maybe not all of your complaint, your, your claims are supported by rigorous data. How do you find yourself sort of selling out into the technology and, and, and pushing the advances of technology without maybe always having all the data that you'd like to have? You know, I, I don't know that that's been such an issue. I mean, we've, <clears throat> you know, we've been science led and data driven. And, you know, when you have, and, and that, and that helps a lot, you know, when you, when you're in the chemistry world, you know, you've got to have full disclosure, you know, for environmental reasons, stewardship reasons about, you know, all the different components in your resins and, you know, you've got, I think you can, I, I don't know that you'd have to compromise that. I think, <clears throat> you know, you let the data drive it. And in fact, we've been setting new standards on, on properties and, and uh, in ways that we think are better foundational ways of, of reflecting accuracy and print speeds and things that, you know, I think our, our data reporting actually is distinguished and looks more academic in ways that the industry hasn't seen. And I think that's been a breath of fresh air. Uh, so I, I don't see, I don't see much of a compromise in that regard. And that's good. I mean, always it, what, what I'm hearing is that, yeah, that there is room and there's always, it's always important to never get ahead of the data. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, and, you know, publishing papers, I think is key. And, you know, one of the things we do is, you know, we, we're getting our printers more and more into various uh, academic uh, uh, settings. And, and so I have a number of former students that uh, are postdocs that now have uh, printers from Carbon at University of Delaware and Penn State. And, and uh, we've been helping out uh, various folks, uh, uh, Lakeisha Williams at University of Florida, Kathy Fromman at Delaware, and Rob Shepard at Cornell and different places. And and getting the technology into academics' hands so that they could publish the papers and uh, and talk about the properties and and see what's there and see what's not there and just be really clear about the data. Well, and and I think you'll probably find their publications circle back around and give you some inspiration and ideas as well. So, totally, totally. Yeah. And you know what? When you have a platform and you know a tool to make things, right? What you're really inspired by is the, is what people make and to celebrate their innovations and help them. Uh, achieve what their visions are, you know, in, in being able to give them a really powerful making tool. Right. This is fantastic. Well, well, let me wrap up. Use the word in, in inspiring, and uh, I want to turn it back around. You know, based on your career, who, who is somebody that stands out to you that's really inspired your work and inspired you to continue to move on? Well, you know, it's <clears throat> you have some luminaries like uh, Bob Langer, right? Mm -hmm. Driven things up at MIT in so many different ways, and you know everybody in the whole nanomedicine community um, has played such a role. You know, I, I think in many ways, you know, the nanomedicine oncology focus. So many of us were in that uh, field, as you know, and and having that technology be there, helping everybody on infectious diseases like COVID. I mean, talk about mm -hmm. we're living through one of the most inspirational times in history. Mm -hmm. watching the mRNA vaccines coming through and that 
can just tells you about the importance of science and and biotechnology and then all the new discoveries you know carolyn potosi just realizing that and publishing rna is like costellated and and uh you know watching what she's doing francis arnold down at caltech mm-hmm. uh, paul hammett up at mit there's so many great academics that inspire me and then the entrepreneurs you know i mean elon musk you know i'm uh, i'm a minor investor in in spacex but just to see these ships landing at the same time and reusability and just thinking differently and you know, he didn't invent the electric car, but damn, he's making it happen. And he's, you know, then Starlink's coming on communication. That's really inspiring. And, you know, Jeff Bezos this morning is going to climb and be the first, one of the first people in his piloted uh, the, uh, ships to go on into space. And that's, that's putting your, your belief in your own product right there. And so there's entrepreneurs inspire me, academics inspire me, uh, and those that use our printers inspire us. So it's just so many, so many different ways I get inspiration. Yeah, that is great. And uh, there, are, there are some luminaries, you're right, and, and we're living through some amazing times when you think also about uh, CRISPR. You know, I'm, I'm working on the Codebreaker book, Jennifer Doudna, and, and all of the, the whole body of research community that has led to that. And, and as you mentioned, the mRNA revolution and the ability to edit, uh, where that can go is just uh, amazing. Yeah, it's inspiring times for sure. Well, Joe, thank you so much. Uh, It's been a pleasure. We really have enjoyed having you on the show here. Uh, You are welcome back here anytime. We'd love to have you uh, continue to stay involved within our community. We thank you for your work and your your continued hokey pride as you help us think through the innovation campus as as you uh, work with some of our young investigators. and, And we are just grateful for your words and your advice here today. Well, thanks, Brett. It's a Virginia Tech uh, approach to research uh, is what set me in in this direction and the whole legacy for Jim McGrath, Tom Ward, Darth Wilkes has been Mm. amazing. Very grateful for the the entire team of Virginia Tech giving me the foundation to go forward. So thank you. Well, it's great having you. Thanks and and continued good luck and success with Carbon. We'll be looking forward to uh, the next level of running shoe, hopefully (laughs) uh, make running a little bit easier for all of us. And that's it for this episode. Subscribe to Start Disrupting wherever you get your podcasts. We have a new disruptor on our show every two weeks, and you're not going to want to miss it. Check out vtcrc.com for the latest on our research park and over 225 companies that call us home. Until next time, always change the game.